Paging Dr. Randy. Paging Dr. Randy. I just got on call and they're paging me already. They want me to do work as soon as I get to work. Come on. Let's go. Yes, you. Come on. Well, I'm Dr. Randy. Nice to meet you. I'm a licensed family medicine physician. Since you're on call with me today, I want to make sure you learn as much as possible. Me and a few of my special friends are here to give you all the tips and info you need to live a balanced, healthy life. Are you ready to be on call with me? I hope so. So let's get it going. Our shift starts right now. Welcome back, healthy people, to On Call with Dr. Randy, your source of health information every Wednesday, sponsored by Heinz Entertainment Group. This week's episode is a little bit different. Last month was American Heart Awareness Month. I, along with one of my doctor friends, Dr. Roger Stewart, did a Zoom event where we discussed hypertension and other matters of the heart. We even had some of the participants asking questions, so this is going to be a kind of interactive episode. This event was sponsored by the Stone Mountain Chapter of Kappa Alpha Psi Fraternity as part of their participation in the Good Health Wins organization. Full disclosure, I'm also a member of the Stone Mountain Chapter of Kappa Alpha Psi Fraternity Incorporated. My guest for this event is Dr. Roderick Stewart. Dr. Roderick Stewart, D.O., is a family medicine physician with interest in sexual dysfunction and osteopathic manipulation. He graduated with a B.S. in biobehavioral health from Penn State University in both a M.B.S. in biomedical sciences and a D.O. from the Rowan University School of Osteopathic Medicine. He completed his training in family medicine at Morehouse. So let's go on call with myself and Dr. Stewart to discuss hypertension and other matters of the heart. And once again, this episode is sponsored by the Stone Mountain Chapter of Kappa Alpha Psi Fraternity Incorporated. Let's go on call. All right. So good evening, everyone. I am Dr. Randy Hines II. I'm a family medicine physician here in Smyrna. And so I practice with Wellstar Medical System. I'm also part of the Stone Mountain Alumni Chapter of Kappa Alpha Psi. And we wanted to do this event basically for Heart Disease Awareness Month. And so got with a couple of the noobs and wanted to have just a good discussion on this for this month. So I hit up one of my homeboys, Dr. Roderick Stewart, who is part of this um, discussion as well. He's a family medicine physician out here in Atlanta. So I'll let him kind of introduce himself. Hey, everybody. I like Dr. Hines said, I'm uh, Roderick Stewart. I'm also a family medicine physician. I practice in Atlanta at uh, VitaCare. Um, you know, I'm interested or, you know, ready to do a, a nice discussion on hypertension, have a, a nice uh, back and forth with you guys and see if we can all come away with something that we learned tonight. So this is pretty much just going to be kind of laid back format, just a discussion, me and Dr. Stewart. Um, we have some topics laid out specifically regarding high blood pressure, and we'll kind of go through there and y'all can uh, throw some questions in the chat and we'll try to save those questions for the end when we kind of circle back around so we can kind of stay organized in the way that we're processing this. So February is Heart Disease Awareness Month, and one of the things that definitely affects heart disease is hypertension. And so, Dr. Stewart, how do you usually define hypertension to your patients? Uh, good question. So um, 
what I usually tell my patients is that uh, they don't get a diagnosis of hypertension until uh, if they're less than the age of 60, if they come into the office and they've had a blood pressure reading greater than 140 systolic or the top number over 90 diastolic or the bottom number. And it has to be two separate occasions, at least six hours apart. So the first time I see them, if they have a blood pressure that's a little bit high, um, I let them know that they should keep an eye on it at home. Uh, they should probably check the blood pressure two to three times a day for the next few weeks. And then when I see them again in the office next time, whether it be a couple of weeks or a month from now, if their blood pressure continues to be high, then we have to talk about a new diagnosis of hypertension. Right. Right. So that's one of the things that I also talk to my patients about is basically not putting that label of hypertension or high blood pressure on them at an initial visit, unless they've kind of had a pattern going on of high blood pressure. When they come in and see me, maybe let's just their first time, I may look at some of their other blood pressure readings from other visits that they've gone to, or I just may look at some readings that they bought from home. Sometimes people come in and they say, well, I've been having certain symptoms of high blood pressure and I've been checking my blood pressure. And so I have a log already and they bring that in and I'm like, okay, it looks like you do have high blood pressure, which is basically high blood pressure is too much pressure going on in the arteries that basically supply to your whole body. So like Dr. Stewart mentioned, we look at two numbers. We look at the top number, which we call your systolic blood pressure. And we look at the bottom number, which is called your diastolic blood pressure. Both of those numbers are important. So we can't just say one is more important than the other because sometimes when individuals come see me, oh, I thought the bottom number didn't matter. Nah, both of them matter. We look at both of them when we look at your high blood pressure. So the top number, the systolic is basically when, you're, when your heart beats. So that's why it's kind of more pressure in the system. It's kind of like squeezing a, a water hose. Basically, your heart beats and it produces more pressure in the system. The bottom number is called your diastolic, and that's when your heart relaxes. So that's why the blood pressure in your system is lower with that bottom number. Yeah, and uh, for those people who I see that are over the age of 60, I like to relax that a little bit. Um, because we know that naturally as we age, uh, regardless of smoking status, health status, our arteries will tend to get a little bit harder as we age. So our pressure in our systems will naturally go up a little bit um, to, of course, compensate for that. So I relax that uh, systolic number to be about 150. Anything over 150, uh, we tend to treat um, more aggressively than 140s in people over the age of 60. Right. So as you get older, we want your blood pressure to be a little slightly higher because also it allows for more blood flow to go to your brain. So blood pressure is not cookie cutter. So what may be for some people like, oh, they're already individual. We may be OK with them having higher blood pressure. But other individuals who like less than 60, like Dr. Stewart mentioned, we may want that top number to be less than 140 and bottom number to be less than 90. You also have to think about what kind of doctor that you're going to see. Sometimes you may go be seeing, maybe seeing a cardiologist and a cardiologist may be trying to treat your blood pressure a little more aggressively. So that means that they may want your top number to be less than 130 
and your bottom number to consistently be less than 90 with that aspect. So if you notice a difference between the way me and Dr. Stewart are talking, that's kind of one of the reasons they they approach that differently. Um, we as family medicine physicians, we're okay with having a little bit higher blood pressure readings, um, more so like in the 130s. But I mean, it, it all kind of depends on who you're dealing with and, and the way that they like to um, approach um, blood pressure. And also, if you have like certain other conditions too, like you want to talk about doctors with like um, diabetics and their blood pressure. Yes. Um, when we talk about, um, especially in primary care, we talk about the big three being hypertension, diabetes, and high cholesterol. Um, and the more of those conditions that you have, the higher your risk of developing a heart attack or a stroke um, are over the course of, say, 10 years. So that we talk about... Um, a risk factor score uh, that tells us what the percentage chance of you having a heart attack or stroke in 10 years is. And outside of having higher blood pressure and high cholesterol, just having diabetes is an independent risk factor that significantly increases your risk of developing either a heart attack or a stroke in 10 years. So we we're a little bit more aggressive when it comes to um, blood pressure management in diabetics and those who have higher cholesterol as well. Uh, so you know, we, we take a look at the entire patient and see everything that's going on with them. And we kind of tailor our treatment towards them because no two patients are the same. So no two patients' blood pressure goals will be the same either. Um, I know that uh, my diabetics, I have to work in tandem with bringing their, a their hemoglobin A1C, which is a measure of how high the sugar has been over the past three months. That in combination with their blood pressure, we work on all of it at the same time. And uh, luckily, both, uh, both conditions are treated the same way at home through diet and exercise. So I get a little more aggressive with um, patients who have blood pressure and diabetes. But I, I tell them, you really have to uh, pay attention to what's going on in the kitchen and, you know, get out to the gym, get out on the track and do some jogging or some, some sort of exercise to get your blood pumping. Okay. I see Brother Martez, you got a question over there? Yes. Uh, well, first and foremost, um, great discussion, um, especially considering, you know, this month is, you know, our Heart Health Awareness Month. And um, it's a very important in being that heart disease is the leading death source in the African-American community. Um, as it relates to uh, family history, can you touch on the importance of knowing family history as it relates to the possibilities of heart disease, diabetes, hypertension? and all those things, and the importance of knowing your family history as it relates to that. You got it. Great question. Got it right? Yeah, I'll take that. Uh, great question. Um, so I don't personally know the, the, the hard numbers. I don't think anyone really knows the hard numbers in terms of uh, what's genetics and what's not. Uh, when, we, when we get into studying medicine, we talk about nature versus nurture. Um, nature being the genetics that you were born with, so whether or not your parents um, had high blood pressure, diabetes, whether or not their parents had those um, particular conditions predispose you to those conditions. So um, that is either that can that can look like an issue with the um, blood vessels that go to your kidneys, or it can look like an issue with the uh, stretchiness of your um, blood vessels themselves. Or it can look like an issue with uh, your pancreas and how it processes its insulin uh, from a genetic level. And that we, some people theorize in the maybe 20, 33%, up to maybe 40 or so percent 
of your chance of developing the condition. Um, when people come and tell me, oh yeah, both of my parents have high blood pressure. If you don't have high blood pressure at the moment, that means that there's a chance you could have high blood pressure. But if we approach this now from a preventive standpoint, you could end up not having high blood pressure in the future, or you could significantly delay your own high blood pressure. That's when we get into the nurture part. So that is your own diet. Um, take a look at your diet and whether or not you have high salt intake, because wherever salt goes, water follows. So when you take in a lot of salt in your diet, you retain a lot of water. And when water enters your system, it increases the pressure within your uh, vascular system. So just imagine your cardiovascular system as a series of pipes. If you flood the pipes with water, it increases the pressure. If you take out the salt, you take out the water, you decrease the overall pressure in the system over time. And then also, if you uh, increase your cardiovascular exercise, you allow your heart to pump more efficiently. Um, it pumps with uh, less pressure and is able to pump around the system uh, with less pressure as well, too, because uh, you'll release a series of chemicals and other factors that will allow your blood, um, your, I'm sorry, your, your blood vessels to stay open um, at a higher rate so that it, you can reach different parts of your body with uh, lower pressure. So it's a, a combined effect of both your genetics um, and what you're doing to your body leading up because you're the body that you're born with, you start from day one with everything. So if you're eating a high fat diet, you're eating a high salt diet, that means that the, your pipes are being clogged with uh, cholesterol and the salt that you're taking in is filling up those pipes with fluid so that it will increase your uh, pressure over a series of years. So by the time you get to your primary care physician, say you're in your 50s and your blood pressure is 155 over 95, you didn't get that way in the past two weeks. You likely got that way over the past 20 to 30 years with decisions about diet, exercise, and also the genetics that your parents gave you. Yeah, so since we kind of own the, the topic of common causes of high blood pressure, we already talked about genetics. So definitely, like uh, Brother Martez was asking about, you want to know your family history that kind of helps us out overall, not necessarily with just high blood pressure, but other conditions, knowing who in the family had cancer, because there are certain kind of screening tests that we may order for you earlier compared to the normal population, just based upon that, or other types of conditions as far as thyroid disease, high cholesterol, those all kind of play in a factor on how we treat you or how aggressively. It's been a lot of people that have come to see me with family history of certain things, and I will refer them to like a genetic counselor just for them to go get evaluated and see what their risk of having certain conditions and cancers are just because they know actually know their family history. Other things that contribute to um, hypertension is lack of exercise. You just sitting down all the time, you're not getting your body up active and moving, like that's going to make you want gain weight. When you gain weight, your body is more stressed. When your body is more stressed, it's going to lead to your blood pressure increasing. So lack of exercise definitely plays a major role. Smoking. If you're out there smoking menthols, black and miles on a regular basis, whatever you're smoking, like just on a regular basis, if you're doing like a half a pack a day and you've been doing that for 10, 20 years, you're leading to your blood pressure being high. If you're heavy on the caffeine, if you're drinking too much coffee, like, okay, you're drinking one cup a day, 
that's fine. But if you need like three, four cups a day to get you going, like that's too much caffeine or you're drinking too many sodas that have a lot of caffeine or some people are hooked on like the last 10 or 15 years, a lot of energy drinks. Those things play a major factor into raising your blood pressure up. So you got to cut those in half, find something else to get you going in the morning. If it's like three cups that needs you going, you need, you need to find something else to cut it in half because you may be increasing your risk of having high blood pressure. Alcohol intake, that plays a major factor in raising your blood pressure. So for men, it's about two drinks a day is the max that we would kind of approve for you to have. I mean, some people do more, of course, partying hard on the weekend. We're not going to trip on that, but it's more so like a pattern of things. If you're constantly drinking multiple drinks every day, partying hard every day, that's going to lead to you having an increased risk of blood pressure. And the last thing that I want to mention, stress, 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 stress in your life. That definitely contributes to blood pressure issue. If you have problems at work, family stuff, like just in general, I've had people come in and that's their primary cause of them having high blood pressure, stress. And once the stress goes away, their blood pressure goes back to normal. So I've been able to take them off medication because the stress um, has went away. Yeah, I can't understate that enough. Stress is uh, it's often overlooked as um, a main cause of blood pressure. Like, like you said, I've had several people that they had issues at work um, as soon as they change jobs or they make changes with their therapist or even they start practicing mindfulness, their blood pressure starts to come down. Now, I think one of the things that, that a lot of people do overlook as well in the physical things that leads to high blood pressure is sleep apnea. So uh, if you have an issue with snoring or if, uh, you know, someone that you love that you sleep with, if they tell you you stop breathing at night or they tell you snore, Take that very seriously um, because sleep apnea is something that will you likely have over the course of several years. It will develop into high blood pressure, which will also develop into uh, heart failure, kidney disease. Uh, this is a very complex biochemical pathway that starts with snoring, which could be very uh, easily prevented. Okay, cool. So, yeah, we're going to get uh, towards the end more so information about um treatment options for high blood pressure. So the next topic is basically talking about the symptoms of high blood pressure. High blood pressure is often called the silent killer because a lot of individuals just walk around with high blood pressure and they don't even know it. I mean, like, I feel fine. Like, I, I'm doing well. Like, I'm, I'm straight. But then they come in to see me and they're like, and your blood pressure is high like super high, like so high that I'm afraid I may need to send you to the emergency room right now because you might have a stroke or a heart attack. And some most of the time I don't, but there are some times when I've had to send people who come to see me for the first time to the hospital because they may also be complaining to me like, yeah, I've been having a little bit of chest pain too, and your blood pressure is high. So it may, it's been a couple of times when people have come to see me for a uh, new onset of heart failure just because of those two symptoms. So the common symptoms for high blood pressure can be headache, blurry vision, dizziness, chest pain. I, I've named four. I let Dr. Stewart name a couple of <laughs> the other ones. Uh, low hanging fruit there, huh? <laughs> uh, 
Yeah, so in addition to those four, uh, what I've seen people come in uh, with high blood pressure, um, you know, actually one that uh, people don't realize, erectile dysfunction uh, can be its own symptom of high blood pressure as well. Um, you know, when uh, guys come in and uh, like a lot of times they won't tell you that they're they're dizzy all the time or they have headaches or um they can't see out of one eye or sometimes they feel a little weak on their right hand, which are the symptoms that you, if you're not having a stroke now because of your blood pressure, those are signs of a future stroke coming on or a, a transient ischemic attack. Um, but they'll come in and say that um, their erections aren't lasting as long as they used to, or they're not getting as bit, you know, as strong of erections as they used to. Mm-hmm. And I'll say, well, you know, how's your blood pressure? Um, because in addition to heart attack, stroke, those three things we talk about, diabetes, high cholesterol, hypertension, those also affect um, erections in men very adversely. Uh, so um, the first thing I, I tell the men when they come in with uh, those issues, first of all, they want Viagra. I say, well, let's first make sure that your blood pressure is doing well. Let's make sure that your sugar is fine. Let's make sure all these things that we can fix that can be the cause of uh, your erectile dysfunction, make sure those things are fixed before we start talking about medications. Because even if I throw those medications on board, it's not guaranteed it's going to fix the problem if it's being caused by your high blood pressure. Um, in addition to that, um, you can develop certain kidney issues. Um, some men, they can um, develop you know, an acute kidney injury that can uh, show up as one of the, the first signs of high blood pressure. If, uh, let's say, you it's a particularly hot day, um, you're having some back pain and you go to the emergency room and they see that you have um, an, an, a kidney injury. And because of your blood pressure, you're not sending a lot of uh, fluid to your kidneys to be filtered. That can show up as a sign, not necessarily a physical sign, but it can show up um, as something that we see that maybe point to a problem with your uh, blood pressure. Um and I think I think that uh, those are the ones I see. Like you've got the a lot of the the ones that people spot are usually the headache, the dizziness, the chest pain. Uh, those are the ones that I've seen. Fatigue as well. Body just tired. Uh, yeah. With, dealing with that high blood pressure. And I agree with you talking about the erectile dysfunction. Those are hard conversations to have. Mm-hmm. We as doctors are usually about to rock, walk out the door and they're like, I got one more thing I want to talk about. <laughs> Hey, man, just just get to the point so we can like early on so we can have that conversation. And like I always try to keep it lax and talk to them about it. Like, do you have problems getting the party started or keeping the party going? And that kind of kind of helps them kind of relax and feel free to talk about that issue. But when your blood pressure is so high, your body is basically trying to supply blood to other areas that are more concerned than your penis at that time period. So it's trying to keep your brain going, trying to keep your heart working. And like Dr. Stewart mentioned, if we can treat the problem, we don't have to necessarily put you on Viagra or Cialis. So if you come having that issue and we're talking about things, it's not like we're trying to hold the medication away from you. We're trying to see, like, is there some other cause first that we're missing that needs to be treated? And if we treat that first, then we can fix what that is. Because I've had patients come in and that's their primary symptom and I help treat their blood pressure or I help treat their diabetes and then everything else starts working properly. So we got a question from Stokes. Go to Stokes right quick. What's up, fellas? How you doing? Good, good. 
Awesome. Um, I'm letting some of my coworkers sit in on the call, and a question came up. Do you guys know of any recalls of uh, high, high blood pressure medicine? So, I, I mean, I, I can speak on it a little bit. So it always kind of varies as far as recalls. It's not as simple as recalls everywhere whenever that happens. So there can be a recall. Let's just say I'll throw out one drug name, amlodipine. They can have a recall on that, but it depends on what specific factory that that drug comes from. So let's just say CVS may get that blood pressure medicine from factory A, and then Publix may get that blood pressure medicine from factory B. Factory A may be the supplier that has the problem, but factory B doesn't have a problem with their, with their medication, who they get it from. So if you're ever worried about the medication being on recall, you would call your pharmacy and ask them, is there a recall on the medication that I get from you? And they will let you know if there's a, we call it a, there's a lot number. It's a number that goes on the actual pill and they'll be able to tell you if there's a recall. What I do as a physician, I, I, when I'm in a grocery store like Publix or Kroger, I will stop by the pharmacy and ask them, is there anything that they have a recall on that I don't know about? Because sometimes stuff will come on, on the news before I'm even informed that there's a recall or patients will send me a message like, oh, I heard there's a recall on my drug. I want to switch to something like, let me figure out if that's your drug that has a recall. Yeah, it's a great point. Um, oftentimes, either you guys are informed before we are or the pharmacy is because of that. Because it's never like uh, like Dr. Hines said, it's never all of the specific drug. It's all the specific drug from a single factory. Um, or uh, in the case of the past few years, it's been an additive in some of the combination medicines that uh, has been targeted. Um, I think, yeah, so one of my friends from college, he's actually an inspector for the FDA, and he broke it down to me um, once. He goes over to India and he inspects their uh, factories, and uh, if they have um, some sort of lapse in their process and they don't quite meet up to standards, they're going to get all the lot numbers from that particular factory. And then they're going to issue a recall. That recall is going to go to the pharmacies themselves because they actually dispense the medications. And then, of course, the news outlets are going to pick that up. But for us as physicians, when we write the medication, when we give you a, a prescription, if you go to Kroger or you go to Publix or you go to whichever pharmacy that you uh, happen to go to, we give you one prescription. They'll give you a medication from any host of different factories that make that particular medication. You could have different pills, like different pill colors, different pill shapes. And it's kind of a, um, you know, just by chance that uh, you get a recall of medication or you don't. Um, but it's a very good question. And it's something that um, I think uh, we should do a lot better on uh, in terms of, you know, informing everybody about uh, medication recalls and also specifically the types of medications, because if they recall amlodipine, everyone is up in a scare about their medicine. Just know that your particular amlodipine is fine, but that also doesn't do well for the public when, you know, your neighbor's amlodipine is, is a uh, higher risk of cancer and yours isn't. You don't know who to trust. Right, right. And then we don't necessarily know how it goes on the back end sometimes, because sometimes they may switch the factory where they get pills from. 
And then you come back and tell us and like, oh, my pill was purple last month, but now it's green. I'm like, oh, I, I don't know. That's that's outside of me. That's something that goes on with them and who they contract out with. And that's something on the back end that we're not privy to. That's my favorite game to play is guess which pill this is when they tell you, yeah, it was an orange oval pill that I had. I couldn't tell you what that medicine was. Yeah, we, we didn't go to pharmacy school, so we don't know like all the pill colors. We didn't have tests on that. So sometimes, to be honest with you, we lean on the pharmacists. That's their job to know these certain things. And you can ask them those certain questions that you have. If your pill like switches a different color, or you think you got the wrong pill, like, no, they, they can let you know um, what, what happened on their end. Um, so next topic that I had written down was problems with high blood pressure and what can it lead to so one of the things when your blood pressure is high it can cause problems in all types of different areas so like dr stewart mentioned the erectile dysfunction that's one area that it can lead to when your blood pressure is high it can cause you to have a stroke so that's when you're basically you can rupture uh, rupture a blood vessel in your brain it can be a small one or, or it can be a big one and, and lead to those type of problems um, high blood pressure can also cause your heart to be enlarged. And that's something that we don't want to happen. So there are certain muscles in your body that we're okay with you getting enlarged. If you go into the gym, you hitting them reps hard. You got you some big broad shoulders like Dr. Stewart over there. You got you some biceps and triceps, but we don't want your heart to be enlarged because it's going to give out. So what happens is that when your blood pressure is too high, your heart has to work harder to pump against that system. When your heart has to work harder against the system, you start getting more muscle in your heart. And that's that's not a good thing. We don't want that to happen. That'll lead to your heart giving out or having some type of regular rhythm develop in your heart and basically having a heart attack or having a arrhythmia that can lead to you having a stroke. Yeah, and to jump in on that, um, in addition to your heart, your brain, just about any organ you can think of can have an issue with blood pressure. Uh, your kidneys, uh, we like to think that dialysis is primarily a disease of diabetics, um, but people who have uncontrolled blood pressure for a very long time, their kidneys will also give out as well. Um, just imagine the kidneys as uh, your body's filters. If you increase the pressure going into the filters, you break the filters. So the things that your body wants to keep, it doesn't keep. And those will go out in your urine. And then those filters break down, the kidneys break down, and you'll end up needing dialysis um, because of your blood pressure as well as um, your sugar. Uh, the liver. Liver can be over um, overran with high blood pressure as well. Um, so in addition to having other issues like um, you know drinking problems and uh, hepatitis, uh, cirrhosis, uh, blood pressure can also uh, adversely affect the liver and it can lead to um, swelling and uh, fluid retention in the abdomen. Um, the eyes, uh, we talked about that as well, um, lead to blurred vision, um, also lead to, um, you know, uh, retinopathy. Uh, you know, we like to send people to the um, eye doctor every year who are diabetics but we also um, send people with high, high blood pressure to the eye doctor to make sure they don't have a hypertensive retinopathy or an issue with the way their eyes see because their blood pressure uh, is elevated. Um, just about anything that you can think of, any organ, 
any system can be adversely affected by your blood pressure. So that's why it's very important to prevent all of those things from happening by keeping your blood pressure under control. All right. So like Dr. Stewart mentioned, there are certain things in your blood vessels and your arteries that your body wants to keep and wants to hold on to something like protein. So when we check your urine, if you have a lot of protein in your urine, that's going to be a sign of your kidneys breaking down. So like he mentioned, your kidneys are a filter. So when you filter something, there are some things that you want to keep. But if your filter is broken down, you're going to be losing a whole bunch of stuff that your body wants to keep. And that's not a good thing right there. Some of that stuff can be reversed if you get your blood pressure under control and not so much stress on the kidneys. But if it goes on for a long time period, like you mentioned, you would end up on dialysis. So everybody who's on dialysis is not necessarily all of those people are not diabetics. It can be from high blood pressure issues as well. Brother Martez got a question. Let's go to Brother Martez. So you're, 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 you're speaking of some of the side effects of um, long-term high blood pressure and hypertension. And, and what it, you know, I, mean, I know you mentioned enlarged heart and so on and so on. Can you touch on um, aortic stenosis and, and, and the need for valve replacement? Um, if, in fact, you know, those, those blood vessels, when they start to shrink mm-hmm. and it's harder to get that the, the blood throughout the body. Um, can you touch on uh, the side effects and, and, and what um, some of the things that may occur if that starts to happen? So aortic stenosis, for those who don't know, is basically a hardening of one of the valves of your heart. So you have the valve that basically separates the aorta, which is the largest blood vessel in the heart, from the heart. The aorta is the largest blood vessel in the body, and that attaches to your heart. When your blood pressure is really high, it can lead to that valve being real hard. When that valve is real hard, basically you don't get enough blood flow coming out the heart to supply the rest of the body. So when that happens, you basically we call it decreased perfusion. So everything is not getting the proper blood flow to go to certain areas. So that valve may need to be replaced if that valve gets too hard. If you're not having enough perfusion to different areas, you're not getting enough blood flow to your brain, not getting enough blood flow to your actual heart, which can lead to a heart attack, not enough blood flow going to your kidney everything is lacking in blood flow. So it can kind of create damage throughout the whole body. When you replace that valve, you're able to get the proper amount of blood flow going out the heart. Anything else you want to add, Dr. Stewart? Yeah, it was a really good, um, really good point you made there. And, uh, you know, just know that aortic stenosis itself is a, a it's a progressive um, issue. Um, what we usually pick up on is when we take a listen to your heart, we'll hear what's called a murmur. Um, it'll be, what we hear is the sound of blood going like whooshing past that valve. that's not opening up entirely. And if you didn't know that you had that murmur, then we'll send you for, um, a little bit of evaluation, uh, either with an echocardiogram or, you know, whatever the uh, cardiologist may prefer. If we do send you to cardiology for the evaluation, um, but just know also that if you live long enough, everyone will have a touch of aortic stenosis because um, the aorta being the vessel under the most um, pressure throughout your life, it's the, the um, vessel that gets all the blood as soon as your heart squeezes. So you will develop some narrowing of that valve over the course of your life. 
So a little bit of aortic stenosis is okay. Once that stenosis starts to build up to the point where it's, uh, like Dr. Hines said, it's preventing perfusion from going to the body, that's when we have to talk about uh, replacing it. So there are some people who have a touch of aortic stenosis and they're just fine at the moment. We like to keep an eye on them um, year over year just to make sure that nothing changes with their murmur, nothing's changing if they're not developing any chest pain. Uh, any shortness of breath or anything like that, that would make key us into the possibility that the valve needs to be replaced. Mm -hmm. Hey, Dr. Stewart, you touched on a very good point um, when you mentioned, mm -hmm. um, you know, that a doctor can hear your heart and listen to a potential murmur. Um, and, and again, one of the, one of the things that as from a fraternity standpoint that we've, we've adopted is a, is a heart health series. And so, and that's why I'm asking some of the questions that I am. And so the importance of your, your primary care physician, if they, if he or she is not listening to your heart, when they're coming to see you, you need to make sure that they are, or you need to find another physician because it's, they have to be intrusive. They have to definitely make sure it's not in one place. They have to definitely be evasive and, 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 and going and checking in different areas to hear that irregular heartbeat, to hear irregular heart patterns and so on and so on. Case in point, we were just in Minneapolis. We were doing a heart health series. Not, I'm sorry, in St. Louis. And we had one of our brothers who um, went, was with one physician for years and was just, just going through the rhythm and then went to check, went and found another primary care physician. First appointment, the, the primary care physician asked him, how long have you had an irregular heartbeat? And he was like, well, what do you mean? I, I don't have a regular heartbeat. He said, I do. You do. And he, and he um, sent him to a cardiologist. He thought that it was just, um, just him trying to get, you know, gain money on the insurance. Went to the cardiologist. The cardiologist asked him the same thing. How long have you had this heart issue? And so he went through the stress test, the EKGs, and so on and so on. He was 38 years old. Ran track. Uh, ran track at college, um, was playing basketball three to four times a week, and the cardiologist and his doctor asked him to pull back the things that he were doing and mentioned that he was diagnosed with aortic stenosis, I'm sorry, and that he's now 51, 52, that he's looking towards getting either a TAVR or a valve replacement, where it was either going to be um, pigskin, mechanical, or so on and so on. But now, as he's getting older and it's progressively, like you said, getting worse, because like you mentioned, everyone encounters, but he didn't realize his family history, which he would have had to, just as he did, started early with an aggressive treatment. So it's important to have these conversations with your, your, with your, with your doctors. It's important to know your family history. It's important to ask these questions and to not feel uncomfortable being transparent. Like you said, Dr. Hines, cut to the chase, ask what you want to know, and so on and so on. So you really, really got to be transparent. And I appreciate you both for having this discussion, especially in a forum of men, because you know we're so closed mouth about our health um, because we have this Superman complex where we don't necessarily want to share what's going on. And so having this, having discussions like this opens that door of transparency and vulnerability and it helps so much. So again, thank you both. 
Yeah, no problem at all. And thank you. That that definitely underscores um, the points that we're making. Um, I think every doctor has, if not one, several stories about patients that come in and uh, they are, haven't been to a doctor in a long time or they just came in to, to get their clean bill of health and it leads to further testing and a diagnosis that may end up saving their life. I know I've, uh, for patients who come in, even just for um, something completely unrelated to their heart, that if I don't do anything else in the visit, I listen to your heart and your lungs. And I make sure that I remember from the last time, if I pick up a new murmur and, you know, it's not something that you know about, then we're going to get it evaluated. And there's another point, a good point that you brought up, um, you know, as physicians, we don't make extra money off the insurance by uh, sending you guys for tests or putting you guys on medications. I tell my patients every day, um, it makes my job harder when you're on a lot of medications and you have to go to a lot of things. So I would rather you be on zero medications and taking care of everything in the kitchen and in the gym, because I don't get extra money from uh, giving you pills. I get to pay the same amount of money, no matter if you take seven pills or zero pills. I'd rather you take zero pills because that's less paperwork for me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's less medications that you got to send in on a regular basis. I mean, I'm, I'm the same way. My goal is to try to treat everything with diet and exercise. Like, I don't want to throw more medications at you or any at all. If I can control it by just what you put into your body, like that'll be the best thing that can happen for you. Um, Brother Martez case makes me think about this guy who came and see me maybe like three or four months ago. He was a younger guy in his 30s. He had a heart murmur and it, it was pretty loud. Heart murmurs can be very soft as far as sound or they can be very loud. The ones that are very loud are concerning. As you get older, you can have some soft ones that are not as concerning because as you get older, those valves in your heart don't work as well. But the guy that came to see me, he was like 30, 31. He had a pretty loud murmur. I said, has anyone ever told you how to murmur? He said, yeah, like in high school, but they never told me what was the cause of it. I'm like, "Hmm, okay, let's Let's just get an ultrasound of your heart. So we got an ultrasound of his heart. It's an ultrasound of your heart. We call that an echocardiogram. It's basically like how we look at a, um, a baby in the womb on a mom. We're doing the same thing for the heart. And when they looked at his heart, he had an abnormal aortic valve. Um, basically, he had to get a valve replacement of his heart. And he wouldn't have had that done if I wouldn't have just did the simple thing that everybody should do from doctors to if you go and see a nurse practitioner to a physician assistant. The simplest thing that anybody can do is just listen to your heart and your lungs because you never know when you may pick up um, those people may pick up a murmur or pick up an abnormal rhythm. You may have not had an abnormal rhythm until that point that they listen to it. And it's like nobody's ever told me this before. Okay, sometimes you drive a car and it starts leaking oil. Sometimes it just happens and we catch it at that time period. So that guy, he had to have his valve replaced. He had to have part of his aorta replaced. Um, Based upon the things that they were seeing, his family members, they all had to go get evaluated. And one of his brothers, something was wrong with his his heart too. So that just kind of snowball effect for me just doing the simplest thing of just listening to his heart 
and kind of getting worked up from there. Like he he was young. He had like three, four kids. He bought me a, a gift card to Starbucks the last time he saw me. He's like, man, I'm just so happy you basically saved my life. I'm like, all right, appreciate it. About to go give me a nice uh, hot chocolate with this gift card though. But it's the simple things that people should do just to basically keep you alive and healthy that some people just don't do because they, they may be overworked or just kind of get in that wheelhouse of just doing things on a regular basis and missing certain things. So I think we got a question for from Rick Pace. Let's go to Brother Pace. Thank you. Uh, phenomenal discussion, brothers. I appreciate uh, both of you for sharing your knowledge on this. Uh, Dr. Stewart, you I want to jump back for a second. You you touched on issues that sleep apnea can cause, and you said that it starts with snoring. Can you touch on that a little bit? Because I never snored until probably the last few years to my wife's behest. Um, and my dad actually recently got sleep apnea and got a CPAP. So I just want to kind of understand the connection between snoring, sleep apnea, and what that could potentially lead to. Okay. Uh, thank you. That's actually a very good question. Um, so it's very complex, and I'll try to distill it down, um, you know, I guess into a couple of sound bites here. So as as we age, or some people, even as they're and when they're young, um, the soft palate, um, the, the the part in the back of your throat where you're sleeping, um, that can collapse when you sleep. So when you're asleep, everything is relaxed. That part of your uh, breathing apparatus can collapse on itself, and you can stop breathing because that airway uh, that connection is cut off. For people who are a bit larger, their neck is a bit larger. They have more fat around their neck. Um, Men, men, um, a little bit older, I think, uh, older, like 40 to 50 range, um, that we have a higher risk of that developing. And as you sleep and you stop breathing, your brain senses that and will wake you up throughout the night in order to open up your airway. It'll do this several times. So, um, when someone uh, who was suspected of having sleep apnea, they go get a sleep study. They'll tell you how many times throughout the night you actually stop breathing then your brain will rescue you from that. And over time, your brain picks up that as a decrease in oxygen. And it sends certain signals throughout your body to increase your oxygen carrying um, cells. And that also will send um, as a notice that you're probably not getting enough blood to your brain. So your body will naturally increase your blood pressure over time through sleep apnea as well. It'll increase the pressure to your lungs as well. Um, through a similar mechanism. And that's a cascading effect that will lead to higher blood pressure, um, higher pressure in your lungs, higher pressure going to the kidneys, and it could lead to heart failure, kidney failure, um, a lot of different um, things. And it starts with just the fact that you stop breathing when you're sleeping. Your brain tries to protect you um, by sensing that you're not sleeping and it wakes you up. So you'll be more tired throughout the, um, throughout the day. You'll probably want to take naps. And then that'll also um, trigger the release of stress hormones, which will also lead to increased blood pressure. So there's so many things that lead back to this redundant cycle that increase your blood pressure through uh, snoring um, and through sleep apnea, uh, which will over the course of 10 to 30 years, uh, all those things little by little will start to wear down your body and wear down all of the apparatus that you have. Um, so it's very important that, you know, if you are snoring now, uh, one, get a sleep study, 
to make sure that because um, there's a difference between snoring and sleep apnea. You can snore, and as long as you don't stop breathing, that's not sleep apnea. But snoring is a sure sign of sleep apnea. So they're not mutually exclusive, but they're very, very closely linked. Um, and then once you, if you do get that test done and it says you have sleep apnea, there are, uh, the, of course, CPAP is the machine that you um, place on your on your mouth uh, when you're sleeping to make sure that there's pressure that's going into your airway to keep your airway open at night. That'll help in keeping those um, different uh, cascading effects down. But what you can do yourself is if it's because you're a bit overweight, um, you can you know, work on losing some weight because we know that the redundant um, tissue in this area around the neck as you know, for gain weight, and we have a lot of um, tissue in this area that can lead to an increased risk of sleep apnea. So losing weight is probably the number one thing that people with sleep apnea can do to reverse their sleep apnea. So you can actually completely reverse your sleep apnea if it's, uh, say, due to an increase in weight. In fact, we have some people who uh, throughout the year, if they get heavier, then they'll notice that they have more what we call apneic episodes when they're heavier. Then when they're a bit lighter, they have less apneic episodes or episodes where they stop breathing. So that's like the biggest independent thing you can do is to lose weight if that's something that you're looking at is sleep apnea. Mm -hmm. All right. Thanks a lot. So Brother mm -hmm. Pace, about how many hours of sleep do you get a night? Just, just an average. Um... I shoot for eight, but pretty consistently, I'd say six to seven. Okay. Okay. So like uh, Dr. Stewart mentioned that everybody who snores doesn't necessarily have sleep apnea. So if you came to see me as a physician and that was your only symptom, the way our health system is set up, I technically could not order a sleep study on you just because you told me you were snoring. I can send you to an ear, nose, and throat doctor for you to be evaluated but there are certain criteria for my health system that you have to check off for me to order a sleep study. So one of those things would be that your wife's told you you stop breathing while you're sleeping. Like, okay, like I can order a sleep study. If you're waking up with a headache in the morning, I can order a sleep study. If you fall asleep a lot during the day, if you're like, man, I was driving and I fell asleep and that's been happening more often, or I'm at work and I'm falling asleep all the time and I'm having to take a lot of daytime naps, then I can order a sleep study on you. That's something called hypersomnia. And like Dr. Stewart was mentioning, if you stop breathing multiple times during the when you're asleep, that can put a lot of stress on your body. So like I was asking you how many hours of sleep that you get a night, like if you're having six or seven hours, just imagine like during the day, seven hours where you stop breathing for like 30 seconds, three, four times every hour. That's a lot of times to stop breathing. And then your body is stressed. It's like, man, what is going on? I don't have enough oxygen. We keep we keep stopping breathing every few seconds. And now I'm stressed out. I'm trying to get blood to where it needs to go. And then it's just a constant cycle that you're doing on a regular basis. So you may just want to ask your spouse just to stare at you a couple of nights during while you're sleeping just to see if you stop breathing and I tell nudge you wake you up and then you just come see one of us and we can get the ball rolling on. All right. Sounds good. All right. All right. We'll take you off the hot seat now about you sleeping. So the next thing, basically treatment options. So, of course, we've talked about a whole bunch of different things. Um 
as far as watching your sodium intake that's a major thing because sodium plays a major factor like dr stewart mentioned when you have too much sodium in your system you have more water that goes into the pipes and that creates more blood higher blood pressure so the goal should be less than about 2300 or 2200 milligrams of sodium a day so if you can stay underneath that that's a good goal so cooking more at home being in, in control of what you're putting into your body as far as the salt intake using more herbs and spices and cutting back on the sodium definitely will play a major factor some people like oh yeah i go out to eat um do you watch your salt intake like no nah, i mean i don't know like i don't put no salt on it so where you go oh i go for chick to chick-fil-a okay you don't have to add more salt because they already give you a lot of salt on those type of things so you just got to cook more at home and be in control if you can or find some healthier options where they don't add so much um, salt to the food caffeine intake like i mentioned earlier that plays a major role in your blood pressure so drinking all those coffees those energy drinks can keep your blood pressure high if you're going to cut back on the caffeine, you need to wean yourself down. Please do not just stop caffeine cold turkey because your body has been hooked on that for a long time period. Like I've had individuals who come in to see me that I told them to cut back the caffeine and on their own, they just went cold turkey and their blood pressure either shot up even more or they start having withdrawal symptoms from the caffeine. So they... They've come and see me and they like, I just got a headache that won't go away. So what happened? Oh, I was drinking six cups of coffee a day and now I'm down to one. Like you, you can't do that. Like it has to be a gradual cut, cut back on that. You want to add anything, Dr. Seward? I, I got some other stuff, but I'll let you come in. Yeah, um, I would say to add to the caffeine, um, it's pretty much any stimulant that you may be on. I know um, caffeine is the one that we see most often, but I'm seeing a rise of uh, patients or adults with ADHD who are on uh, stimulants like Adderall, Vyvanse, things like that. Um, and those medications themselves, although they are approved to be given, they can also increase your blood pressure as well. So anything that's stimulating your, your cardiovascular system, stimu stimulating your sympathetic nervous system. So, um, that's increasing your heart rate, which will increase your blood pressure. Um, I know we touched on earlier about your stress. Um, when you're constantly under stress, you release, um, stress hormones, catecholamines, cortisol. Um, those things also increase your sympathetic nervous system, increase your fight or fight response. And although that response is conditioned, um, and you know, it's evolved to get us away from danger, um, like running away from something that could kill us when we're constantly under stress, uh, work, um, home stress bills, those things also, um, induce that same response in us but that response is only built to be used on a very short basis but when the thing that you your body thinks is killing you is on your neck eight hours a day and that response is going through your body eight hours a day that means your heart rate is up eight hours a day your sympathetics are up eight hours a day so all those things are wearing down your body over time so you know it's we don't we didn't you know we're not just um you know, giving lip service to keeping your stress down, investing in the therapist and keeping your stress down is very important. Taking all of your vacation days will help bring your blood pressure down. Not just leaving those on the table will definitely help out um, with that. And, you know, as we said, you know, starting in the kitchen, um, less sodium, making sure that your fluid intake 
um, is as much water as possible. So, you know, that means no, we're not drinking soda. We're not drinking juice throughout the day. We're not drinking coffee all day because those liquids have other things added to them that will increase your blood pressure. But you still need a minimum amount of water every day to make sure that your body is um, working properly. Uh, increasing, you know, fruits and vegetables um, that you can take in your diet. Cardiovascular exercise. So when we talk about exercise, um, I like to separate exercise and resistance training and cardiovascular exercise. Um, I encourage resistance training to a lot of people more so for um, treatment of diabetes, because when you work all of your muscles, that actually um, causes you to use up all of the um, glucose that you have in your bloodstream to go to those muscles um, for energy. But for um, people who have strictly high blood pressure, I like to tell them, encourage a little bit more cardiovascular exercise. So that's um, exercise that'll get your heart pumping. So that can also be weightlifting, but for a lot of people it's running, it's doing something um, like, you know, playing basketball, doing something active to get your heart rate up. Um, and we like to get to a certain um, range. It's different for every person, you know, consult a trainer or uh, someone else to get to tell you to see, tell you specifically what your fat burning zone or your cardiovascular zone is for exercise. So doing, I would say, yeah, the, 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 at least 30 minutes um, a day, three or so times a week uh, will go uh, big strides towards helping keep your blood pressure down because it's not just that exercise in the moment. It's what that exercise does to your body, your metabolism after that. So that one exercise session can be felt for days afterwards because it'll automatically increase your basal metabolic rate and it'll automatically change the way your body utilizes energy. So that cannot be said enough that we know we've said it several times diet and exercise are going to be keys in treating this um that's what i got for you you want to start talking about meds we can start talking about meds too even though neither one of us wants you guys to be on meds but we can start talking about meds too yeah so let's get the conversation going on medication so i'll kind of talk about from my standpoint and then you can kind of talk about from your, your standpoint what um causes you to put somebody on medication for me, it's kind of case by case basis. So if someone comes to see me and their blood pressure is like really sky high and either they're having symptoms or I've seen a pattern based upon other office visits that they've had, like they went to the urgent care for something or they went to like see the asthma doctor and I'm reviewing what I always like to do is review all your visits and see a pattern like, OK, you've had high blood pressure from what I'm seeing. Um, the last six months from all these visits that you go to. And then I, I will go talk to them and have a conversation because sometimes it's sad, but people don't like coming to see us and they're nervous and they're anxious <laughs> and they get stressed. Some people, I get it. Y'all just, I don't like coming to the doctor. All right, that's cool. But I need you to check your blood pressure outside the office. And so usually I have people go and check their blood pressure outside of the office. That means you go home if you're not having any symptoms and your blood pressure is not so concerning where I feel like I got to put you on something there today or send you to the hospital that I'm going to bring you back in a month to six weeks. So you're going to check your blood pressure for me at least 
three to four times a week. You're going to bring me a log, like you're going to write it down, or you're going to get you a blood pressure cuff that syncs up to your phone. There's a lot of blood pressure machines that you download an app and it'll send the readings directly to your phone. So that makes it easy for us as a physician when you can pull up that app and it has it all logged in and shows us a graph where you've been for the last four to six weeks. If you come back and show me that, of course, I'm going to tell you also like the, the other things that we mentioned, you need to watch your diet, you need to exercise, all of those things after I've got a good history, if you've, if you've been eating right and exercising already. If you come back and you see me and your blood pressure is still high and you've made those changes, then we're going to have a conversation about medications. And it depends on other conditions that you have. Like if you're a diabetic, I may need to put you on a certain um, medication. And if you're not a diabetic, there are certain medications that work better in us as far as black individuals. So I will lean more towards those medications if I put you on something. And when I put you on medications, I'm going to also inform you why that I feel like it's warranted at that time and why I picked that specific one. Because sometimes people come in with a list and they're like, well, my granny's on this and I want to be on this. Well, your granny has this and that, and that's why she's on that. And I, you don't have any of those things. And this one will work better for you, for you and your condition and has like less potential side effects than what your granny had. So you want a, a good physician that it's going to, if they put you on something, explain to you why they put you on there and then also give you options of, okay, you can be on this one or be on that one if you're okay with starting medication. I don't want to feel like I have the um, power in my hands. I like to give patient autonomy and letting you have a choice rather than me feeling like I'm forcing you to be on a particular medication. So I'll let Dr. Stewart um, give his spiel. Yeah, I go through a very uh, similar course of events um, with my patients. Um, if it's the first time that you're coming in with uh, high blood pressure, we make sure that it's something that happens a second time. Uh, make sure that high blood pressure is repeatable. Um, make them, you know, go home, check their blood pressure, bring those readings in. And then when we do make the decision that, yeah, we're going to treat your high blood pressure, we have a conversation. Like, how do you want to do this? Do you want me to just put you on medicine or do you want me to give you some time to uh, bring the blood pressure down on your own? You can talk to our nutritionist. We can talk about an exercise plan um, and we can attack it from then. If they choose that route, um, I'll give them three months. I say three months from today. You come back, your blood pressure is better. We don't have to have this conversation again. We'll just continue uh, looking at your blood pressure. If it's still high, then at that point, we have to talk about medication um, because it's not so much that I just want you to be on medication. I want you to live. I don't want you to just live a long life. I want you to live a high quality life, which does not include going back and forth to dialysis or going back and forth to the neurologist because you had a stroke. So we have to make sure that we prevent these things. Um, and then depending on how, how high the blood pressure is, of course, you know, uh, as you said, other um, conditions will determine, you know, whether I start with certain medications, a combination medication, um, and then depending on how much it takes for us to get you um, under control, we start low and we go slow. So I start at the bottom dose of, of medications, and then we will increase that dose gradually. And I let the patients know. Let me know if you feel any side effects, like, you know, call my office. Don't just stop taking the medication and then show up three months later and say, oh, yeah, I stopped taking that um, after two weeks because it made me feel a certain way. I'm like, well, the past three months, we could have put you on something else. We could have had another game plan if you would have just let me know. 
um, that the that you had an issue with the medication. And then once we get you on a stable medication, then um, we talk about what's the plan to get off the medication. Um, because, you know, if, if possible, if you can, if it just takes you a little bit longer to get your diet and exercise under control, then we can talk about de-escalating medications. So, you know, taking that dose down some and seeing how your blood pressure responds to that. I've taken several patients off of medications um, over the past few years, and we've been really proud of that because, you know, a lot of people think that once they start taking medications, that's it for the rest of their life. And like, no, at any point in time, a lot of people, not saying everybody can make the turnaround, but a lot of people can make that turnaround. Um, and, you know, it just, it just takes buy-in from both your, you know, yourself and your physician, because you guys are a team. We, we're just able to give you advice on your health. It's up to you to go home and, you know, make it work. Um, and then of course, partnering with the right physician. Um, I can't tell you how many times people have come in and they've been put on medications that I have no idea why. It's like, like there's a, a blood pressure medicine called metoprolol um, that I've, I've had several of my patients come in on. And they're like, why are you on this medication? Do you have an issue with the, the way your heart beats? They're like, no, it's just my blood pressure medicine. Nope. Take you right off that medication immediately. We're going to try something else. Mm-hmm. Um, cause not, not every doctor practices medicine the same way. And not every doctor is out there looking out for you the way that we would be looking out for you without saying too many words. <laughs> um, but <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that's it. Um, it, I, I make it very simple to treat blood pressure. Um, we work as a team and we, every step of the way, you know, you make the decision. I'm just here to help you out. Right. Right. Like. I also like to look at uh, my patient's quality of life. Like I may ask you just in conversation what your job is, and that may influence my decision on what blood pressure medicine that I may put you on, because there are certain medications that work better in us as far as black individuals, if the majority of people are listening are black. Um, So there's a, a water pill, as some people call it. It's called hydrochlorothiazide. That's shown to work better in us. Some people are like, oh, it's just the water pill. I think it just gets off fluke. Like, no, it actually helps to control your blood pressure too as well. But if you're a truck driver, I'm not necessarily going to lean towards that medication because you're going to be on the road a lot. I want you, because it has the potential of making you have an increase in urination. I want you to have something that you don't have to worry about you go into the bathroom more frequently. I want you to be able to do your job and not feel any side effects. And like Dr. Seward mentioned, we need you to report us side effects that you may be having so we can maybe send you in something else. So when you come back to see us, that we'll know that, okay, this was the reason we changed this and seeing if something else works for you. So like doc, uh, so like, who's that? Brother Martez mentioned in the group chat, um, basically asking does some medication lead to having erectile dysfunction? It doesn't happen that often, but there are some that can sometimes some people are like, yeah, my blood pressure is under control, but my manhood not like, okay, let us know that. There's not just one pill as far as blood pressure medicine. We can switch it up and see if something else works for you so you can still do what you need to do and get your cardio up in another way and keep your blood pressure under control. And so it's all about like a conversation and being open and honest. And your body also has to have time sometimes to adjust to the medication too as well. Because if you're walking around and your blood pressure is sky high and has been sky high for years or months, 
your body has to get adjusted to coming down. So you may have like some initial headaches. You may have some dizziness going on. You may have to push through that maybe for like a week and a week and a half and seeing some um, changes in those symptoms. But it's, if it starts to become debilitating, definitely let your physician know. So I think we're getting close to the end. So as we wrap up, are there any kind of lingering questions going on that we haven't kind of touched on that people wanted to ask us? Hey, Dr. Hines and uh, Dr. Stewart, um, mm -hmm. brother favors here. Um, I just want to um, just give you guys a big thanks on night for um, just the information and all of the uh, help you probably given a lot of people. Um, with the information that you're disseminating. So again, thank you on behalf of the chapter uh, for, for hosting this and also uh, giving us that information. You're welcome, you're welcome. No problem, we're here to keep everybody's health under control. Um, if y'all haven't heard anything today, diet and exercise and what you put into your body is a major component of keeping your blood pressure under control. And if you don't have a primary care physician, Look, look them up, try to talk to your network. That's the easiest way to find out um, a good physician that you can go see. Talk to your friends, talk to your family members, see who they're going to see and basically establish care with someone. Um, you don't want to wait till something happens that you oh, now I need a doctor. No, you want to get something before get someone before. All right. So if there's no more questions. I guess that's it. We're wrapping up. Thank you both for that information. Yeah, thank you all. Hope you all learned something regarding hypertension and how we as primary care physicians approach treating high blood pressure. Thank you, Dr. Stewart, for participating in today's episode. Also, thank you to the Stone Mountain Chapter of Kappa Alpha Psi Fraternity Incorporated for sponsoring this event. Be sure to check out the chapter's website in the show description for more information on the chapter and programs that may benefit you or someone else. Thank you all for listening. Please like, share, and subscribe with others. See you all next week, and as always, stay healthy physically and mentally.